Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, magicandalchemy.com is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lizenby. Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. So Kristen, how are we feeling? We've got six planets in retrograde as we speak and as we record this episode. You know, I still have a full moon hangover from September's Pisces moon. So yeah, does that answer your question? (laughs) How are you feeling? All I can say is um, same. (laughs) But um, what are we reading right now? You know, I know our listeners love a good book share, and it's been a while since we've done one. I'm actually in the middle of Highland Witch by Susan Fletcher, which came highly recommended from Shelby, the head witch in charge at Tamed Wild. And so far, it's really great if you love witchy historical fiction. I also just finished Hag by Kathleen Kaufman, which is a beautiful story about the Kaliak, cycles, Mm -hmm. and family. I also just finished reading From the Cauldron Born by Christopher Hughes, which I'm going to talk more about in today's episode. But what about you? What books are you spending time with right now? So I also received a copy of The Highland Witch from Shelby, which I can't wait to dive into Um, I've been resting a lot more than usual, and so I haven't really been reading as much, Um, but I have been listening to the audiobook of Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I read the book years ago, but to listen to Robin read it has been very restorative um, and kind of a whole different experience. But Mm -hmm. I've also been working on the anti-racist writing workshop, How to Decolonize the Creative Classroom by Felicia Rose Chavez, as well as Robin Rose Bennett's The Gift of Healing Herbs. I've read this one before as well, but my first year apprenticeship project is due in November, and so I'm delving back into some details about oak and oak trees. Because of that, I'm rereading sections of By Oak, Ash, and Thorn on Celtic shamanism from DJ Conway as well. Amazing. I love DJ Conway, also Robin Rose. And I've heard you mention the one from Felicia Rose Chavez a couple of times, so it must be good. Mm -hmm. And while I could talk about books all day long— Today, I'm really looking forward to our discussion because we're going to talk about one of our favorite archetypes, the crone. Yes, I love her too, but she feels so difficult to encompass in just a single episode. Um, To me, she's such a sacred figure that I almost wasn't quite sure where to start. I completely agree, but we're going to try and cover as much as we can. We're going to chat about the crone as she appears in mythology, literature, and folklore. And I know that like all archetypes, there are many versions of the crone, and we won't get to all of them. But which ones are you going to talk about today? 
Today, I'm going to talk about Baba Yaga, who is a longtime favorite character of mine, the Grey Sisters and the Void, and a little bit of discussion around embodying the crone in our own practices. What about you? I'm going to do a little dance between the crone as the dark goddess and her relationship to cycles, cauldrons, and shape-shifting. Beautiful. Let's get into it. And just a little side note before we begin, if you're new to this space and want to hear about either the maiden or mother archetypes before we talk about the crone, check out episodes 18 and 27 from season one. Yes, and for a bit more on the crone, we talk about Streganona in our Kitchen Witch episode from season one. I believe it was episode four, so pretty early on in the podcast. The crone is the third phase of the triple goddess, after the mother and before the maiden. Although cronehood is the third phase of the Holy Trinity, and often referred to as the final stage, finality sounds linear and eternal, whereas the goddess is all about cycles. In folklore, the crone is the stereotypical wicked witch in the woods or the wise woman. She's either the friendly grandmother like Streganona or Labafana, or she's Baba Yaga, also a grandmother, but one that will eat you if you don't do exactly as she says. In mythology, the crone is an embodiment of the dark goddess. She's Hecate, Lilith, Persephone, Kaylee, Isis, Caridwin, and the Kaliak. If we follow the wheel of the year, the crone rules the dark half, the months between Mabon, the fall equinox, and Imbolc, the start of spring. The crone revels in the stillness of winter, and we honor her quiet wisdom and transformative powers at Samhain and also Yule, the winter solstice. And although the solstice is sacred to the crone, at midwinter, the triple goddess unites, so we also honor the maiden, the mother, and the goddess in all her forms. From a human standpoint, the crone represents the dark phase of life and the wisdom that comes with old age. As she moves closer to the day when her human body will return to the earth, she begins to understand that her essence, her soul, is everlasting. She knows that death isn't final. It's an ending, yes, but also a threshold. That's why the crone is often seen as the keeper of mysteries. When we're ready to experience those mysteries for ourselves, all we need do is follow the high priestess into the void where everything we know about reality is broken down, reabsorbed, and stirred back into her cosmic cauldron. Ah, yes, the classic walk straight off into the void. (laughs) Exactly. We also meet the crone each year in the month before our birthday. This month represents the dark moon phase of our personal yearly cycle. So if you're somebody who experiences birthday blues, working with the crone during this time might be helpful. In her book, Mysteries of the Dark Moon, which I reference all the time, author Demetra George does a good job of bridging the gap between the emotions that arise during the dark moon phase of our yearly cycle, or any cycle for that matter, and how they mirror our relationship and therefore our response to change. You know, I've never heard this thought before. Um, I'm curious, where does it come from? Like, I always thought 
that I had birthday blues because I was born in January and have spent kind of a long time in my life understanding wintering. But maybe this has something more to do with it. You know, being born at the winter solstice, I thought the exact same thing. Mm. So when I started reading Mysteries of the Dark Moon and, you know, about a person's relationship to the dark moon phase of their own yearly cycle, it was sort of an aha moment, you know? Definitely. So all this enforces, at least for me, that the crone is such a valuable archetype and ally, not only as we mature physically, but also emotionally, spiritually, and magically. From a cosmic standpoint, the crone is the waning or dark moon. If we engage with lunar magic, the dark moon is a powerful time to practice banishing, releasing, cutting cords, astral adventures, and any form of divination. The crone thrives in stillness. We can look for her at midnight, the witching hour, or in the moments just before dawn. The crone is also the night hag, the psychic, the fearless one, the dream walker, the guide that can lead us to and through liminal spaces. She is rest, she's wisdom, she's a doorway, a healer, a shapeshifter, and so, so much more. And in case it's not yet obvious, I adore her. Same. And as I sat down to write this episode, I kept asking myself, why do I feel so connected to the crone? And that's not to say I need to have a reason, but also the crone is a badass, so there are likely many reasons. But I think it's her relationship to the mysteries that keeps my attention. Also, her cauldron. favorite crones is Caridwen, the crone of Wales. She's associated with the moon, grain, and her famous cauldron. In the book Maiden Mother Crone by DJ Conway, it says, quote, communing with her and being given a drink from her magical cauldron was said to confer the greatest inspiration for poets and musicians, end quote. It's also believed that the Holy Grail, a Christian or Arthurian relic said to offer miraculous powers, is actually the goddess's cauldron. Some suggest that the name Grail likely originated from Greel, the potion brewed by Caridwen in her sacred vessel. In the folktale Bran the Blessed, Bran steals Caridwen's cauldron because it has the power to bring people back to life, which is no doubt a nod to the ongoing cycle of life, death, and rebirth, but also a reference to the cauldron as a symbol for the underworld, the womb, and the source of all creation. There's another famous legend about Caridwen in the book of Taliesin that illustrates the potency of her potions. I'm going to share a very abbreviated version, but in short, Caridwen had two children, a beautiful daughter named Creary, and also a son named Morfron, who suffered from a warped mind and deformed body. Now, Caridwen was worried about the future of her son, so being the goddess of poetry, creation, and inspiration, she did what any powerful witch would do, and brewed a potion that would allow her to share these gifts with Morfron. And so, for a year and a day, the goddess forages for the finest, most magical herbs and throws them into her bubbling cauldron. She hires a blind man to tend to the fire and a servant, Guion Bach, 
to continually stir the potion for 366 days. But either Guion was a bit careless or it was divine intervention, because just before the potion was ready, the boy accidentally splashes three drops onto his thumb. Without thinking, he sucks his thumb, ingests the magic, and is instantly blessed with the goddess's powers. However, because he now knows everything, Guion is super aware that Caridwin will be furious when she finds out, so he takes off into the woods and a grand chase ensues. Because the former servant has magical abilities, when he sees the goddess on his heels, he shapeshifts into a rabbit, but then she transforms into a greyhound. He sees a lake, jumps in, transforms into a fish, but Caridwin follows and takes the form of an otter. He turns into a bird, Caridwin into a hawk, and then finally, he decides to become a piece of grain and hide within a haystack. But Caridwin shapeshifts into a black hen, scratches around, and eventually swallows the piece of grain, and therefore, the boy. But when Caridwin shapeshifts back into her human form, she realizes that she didn't kill the boy. She's now pregnant with him. The goddess is still furious with him for spoiling her potion and is determined to kill the baby as soon as he's born. But on the day of his birth, he's just too beautiful with a radiant brow, it says. So instead of enacting her revenge, she wraps up the baby in a skin belly coracle and sends him out to sea for 40 years. He is eventually found and adopted by a prince, and that's when he's renamed Taliesin. Taliesin would go on to become a famous Welsh poet and a symbol of the mysterious, mystical knowledge that Caridwen brews in her cauldron. And while not confirmed, there are many who believe that Taliesin was also one of Merlin's predecessors, or perhaps a regional variant of the famous wizard. Can someone, has someone made a movie of this? Like, we need it. <laughs> I, I think I think we definitely do. But I've never heard it before, and I love it. Thank you for, thank you for that. Of course. And there is so much to dissect within this story, but it's really the cauldron and what's being brewed within that speaks to me. In anticipation of this episode, I read a book called From the Cauldron Born by Christopher Hughes, and it talked in depth about this myth and what Caridwen brews in her cauldron. Her sacred potion is called Awen, spelled A-W-E-N for anyone that's curious. And in short, Awen is the soul of the universe, referred to as the divine flowing spirit of inspiration. And I think this description will likely mean something different to everyone, but it hints at a form of universal consciousness that connects all human spirits or souls. There is a beautiful quote from Taliesin that mirrors this thought. He says, quote, I have been a multitude of shapes before I assumed this form. I was a drop of rain in the air. I was the brightest of stars. I was a word among letters. I was a book in my prime. I was a path. I was an eagle. I was a coracle on the sea, end quote. And even the story I'm retelling, which is a spell on its own, hints at that transformative power of the crone and how working with her magic connects us to the origin of spirit.
One of my favorite stories of the crone is Baba Yaga, as you mentioned earlier. Baba Yaga comes to us from Slavic folklore and is well known in Russia and across the world. Her name translates loosely to old woman or grandmother, Baba, and wicked or snake, Yaga. To me, Baba Yaga is a character of strangeness and duality. She is both a comforting wise character and a frightening symbol at the same time. In her duality, Baba Yaga teaches us an important lesson. Identity is not zero-sum. She either assists those that stumble across her path in the deep of the pine forest or attempts to eat them. She's a crone woman who rides a mortar through the forest, which she drives with a pestle, and is often found riding alongside death as they search the forest for newly lost souls. Sometimes she is associated with bringing storms and strong tempests, and sometimes she is associated with the energy of Mother Earth. Her mercurial state infuses each story she steps or flies into. One of the most famous folktales of Baba Yaga is Baba Yaga and Vasilisa the Beautiful, or Vasilisa the Wise. And in this story, Vasilisa lives with her evil stepmother and stepsisters after her mother passes away. She keeps a doll from her mother in her pocket, and the doll acts as a source of wisdom and intuition and often guides the girl through her daily chores. The stepmother and stepsisters frequently conspire against the beautiful Vasilisa, and so one day they send her away for fire. They know that she will have to go to the hut of Baba Yaga to ask for one of the skull lanterns at her gatepost, and they also know that Baba Yaga is famous for eating her visitors, quote, as one eats chickens, end quote. (laughs) Baba Yaga forces Vasilisa through meaningless tasks, such as separating grains of rice from wheat kernels, and tells the girl she will not let her go until she does what the old witch says. The doll helps her caretaker by calling upon the creatures of the woodland to help with the tasks, and when Baba Yaga sees that the tasks have been completed, she agrees to give the girl the skull lantern, and when she returns, the skull causes a fire, burning the evil stepmother and stepsisters to ashes, and as the story goes, Vasilisa ends up marrying a czar and all is well. So if you come upon Baba Yaga in the woods, treat her with respect. Her witchcraft is that of legends, as is her special variety of magic. I want to point out that Baba Yaga also has a cauldron, as mm. many of the great witches do. And I could be wrong, but I think she uses her cauldron as a threat most of the time. Like, if you screw up this riddle I'm giving you, you'll end up in the pot. (laughs) And maybe that's why Baba Yaga gives me hearth goddess vibes, but in a spookier way, which I like. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. And it's also very Hansel and Gretel to me. Maybe here, like, the cauldron is a threat of transformation or a role in initiation. It's funny you say that because I was just wondering if Baba Yaga might have been one of the inspirations for the story, Hansel and Gretel. Mm. But I'm just speaking aloud here. I really don't know. Yeah. No, I can see that. 
You know, I actually have a chicken leg tattooed on my on my own leg <laughs> in honor of Bobby Yaga, which is honestly one of my favorite tattoos. I <laughs> uh, love it. Um, and, you know, apart from Bobby Yaga, I also think about the Gray Sisters when I think about the crone. Um, something that really stands out to me is that there are kind of two sorts of crone archetypes that I've noticed. Um, one is the crone alone in the woods, and one is the crone with a sister or a best friend or two. You know, think the ants in Sabrina the Teenage Witch or the ants in Practical Magic. They've kind of surpassed society's expectations of what it means to grow old. And then they get to just spend time with other women and maybe a few familiars or just remove from society entirely. Which sounds like my dream, by the way. Yeah, same. (laughs) Um, The Grey Sisters are also known by the names the Grey Ones or the Grey Witches, among others. Their names are Dino, Enyo, and Pimfredo. Dino translates to dread, enyo, horror, and pifredo means alarm, although some sources point to different yet also frightening names. But the Grey Sisters come from an old version of Old Greek, meaning old woman or to grow old. The Grey Sisters are also sisters to the Gorgons and were daughters of the sea gods. They came out of the womb as old women, gray at birth and gray ever since. These crones share both an eye and a tooth. You may remember them from the animated version of Hercules as they pass around their eye to gaze into the future. In some tales, they have the heads of women and the bodies of swans. The Grey Sisters are known as sea hags who are personified as the white foam of the waves. And I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but um, the etymology of hag comes from holy, which, of course, has been twisted by the patriarchy over time. Yeah, and like the word witch, hag is one that I've been seeing people consciously reclaiming, which feels really good. Yes, here's to being hags. (laughs) The most famous tale about the Grey Sisters may be their encounter with Perseus before he kills their sister Medusa, who we definitely need to do an episode on, just Mm -hmm. saying. Um, But as I mentioned, the Grey Sisters were the sisters of the Gorgons, the three-winged, snake-haired women who were able to turn men into stone with just a glance, the most famous being Medusa. So when Perseus comes to slay Medusa, it is said that he stole the eye and the tooth from the sisters in order to threaten them into telling him where their sister was. Legend has it, the Grey Sisters live close to the underworld in a liminal space close to Hades, which, like you mentioned earlier, is so emblematic of the crone, the liminal space, and the void. And you and I speak a lot about the void, especially off microphone, (laughs) and what that really means, doesn't mean, but it's a place of the crone and dream work, poetry, non-linear time, all of these things. It reminds me of the term, the bardo, which I also know that we've spoken at length before about, but the roots of this word are from the Tibetan word bardo with a translation meaning existence in the interval, referring to the period between death and rebirth. And I think that Kim Kranz sums up this place really well in her archetypes deck. She writes, quote, 
in the bardo, there is a potential to forgive the unforgivable, to say the unsaid, to see the unseen, to love the unloved, and to let go of all the things that cause us pain. The bardo suspends us in its spaciousness for just long enough to open us to higher wisdom. Its energy does not belong to earth as we know it, but rather to the cosmic network of which we are a single thread. And to me, I hear echoes of the crone in this matter, like a sort of deep well of knowledge that exists outside of our everyday framework. I love this description because it's so challenging, at least for me, to describe something like the void or the bardot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What does the space mean to you and your work, Kristen? You know, I'm still figuring that out. But when I reflect on my initiation into the void, which Mm -hmm. happened in a dream, if anyone is curious, it was terrifying, but Mm -hmm. in the best of ways. It was like, whatever I thought I knew was gone, life as I knew it no longer existed, and nothing would ever be the same. So initially a bit scary, but also freeing. In the void, you say goodbye to one version of yourself, but now have the space to welcome the one who comes next. And I think that's just one of the gifts of the void, you know, a lesson Mm -hmm. in detachment and also transformation that, at least for me, is very prevalent in my craft. I love that. Um, While writing this episode for today, I was thinking about some ways to embody the crone in our lives and practices. Um, And as someone very much so still in their maiden phase of life, these are things that I'm still working with. But um, I wanted to share them with you and with our listeners. But I think that primarily to me, the crone is just so unfuckwithable. And so when I say unfuckwithable, I mean that the crone is so deeply unbothered and so deeply rooted in herself that she's not swayed by drama or external chaos. The crone casts boundaries not as an affront to others, but as a way of honoring herself. The crone knows what she deserves and asks others to rise to that occasion for themselves as well as for her. And I think one of the most powerful ways you can be in your crone energy is to trust yourself. Trusting yourself is obviously a practice that can take years um, and processing, but by knowing that you can always come home to yourself and that you are so worthy that worth isn't even a word that we need to use or wonder about, I think that intuition is a voice that we've kind of taught to suppress for its lack of rationality in a patriarchal society, but your intuition is valid and your knowledge is so deep and the crone knows this and can remind us of that. I also think that just in a culture of productivity, it can be so easy to always just be doing and the crone can teach us to just be. The crone doesn't need to always achieve and in this state of being, she might be able to sit and observe. Many things can be taught to us and witness, and what might we learn if we just pause? And, you know, I don't know about you, but as a woman, I was always taught that my worth would diminish as I grew older. But I think that the crone just shows us how this isn't true. 
the crone receives power via her silvering hair, and she knows that the standardized sets of beauty don't even come close to her divinity. I was taught by my poetry mentor, Diane Seuss, that you must always throw a hand back to help someone behind you in life like people do for you. And I think that this is a really important crone lesson from a crone teacher of mine. Like, we must always help our communities, and if we have power, we must share it. It's the only way that we can ever succeed or be fulfilled in our art, you know, through community and mutual aid. But I'm curious, what are some ways that you connect with the crone archetype? Uh, You know, stories are always going to be number one for me. Like you, I'm a big believer in embodying archetypes to further spiritual and personal development. And the first step of that is immersing myself in their stories and trying to see reality through their lens. So not surprisingly, just reading and writing stories about Caridwin, the Kaliak, Lilith, Hecate feels like a powerful form of devotion. Mm-hmm. But beyond the crone as a human manifestation, I work with her essence quite a bit. I love engaging in magic and divination during the dark moon. I am a huge fan of liminal spaces, specifically a version of the void I fell into during a dream a while back that I mentioned. And Mm -hmm. I even have a cauldron on my desk that holds all my writing utensils. As a word which the thought of dipping my pen into Awen the soul of the universe before I engage in my craft feels pretty supportive. Sending this question back to you, Kate, I know you just mentioned a list of ways to connect with and embody the crone, but assuming for a moment that the dark goddess is new to you, how would you extend an invitation to her? That's a great question. Um, And I also think I need to try your pen practice. Yes. But... (laughs) I was actually just taught about making ink with walnuts, Um, so more on that soon, by the way. But I think that, like stories, like you're saying here, they are a wonderful way to connect with that energy. And I also feel like my poisonous plant studies have brought me closer to her and to that space. You know, of course, I have to caveat here, don't ingest poisonous plants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, there are beautiful meditations that can be done or safe essences to be worked with that can be a guide toward the dark goddess or the liminal space, you know. And of course, poetry. My answer is always poetry. Yes, when in doubt, word witchery to the rescue. Yes. Um, This spring, I listened to the audiobook The Power of the Crone by our forever favorite Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, which I just highly recommend to everyone. You listened, right, Kristen? Yes, so good. So it feels kind of right to end this episode with a quote from her. If you weep, the crone will move closer to you. Laugh, and she wants to hear the joke. Dance, and she wants to dance with you and in you. She has help for the hurt, and for the one poisoned by bitterness. She can pull the thorn from the breast and tattoo your scars with flowering boughs. This is the power of the crone, ready to assist each of us to fulfill the callings of the soul on this earth, with verve, with style, with critical insights, with wisdom, and with love.
you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lizenby and Kate Ballou. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at K8 Ballou. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com. Tune in to next week's episode where Kristen and I interview Amanda of Pretty F and Spooky. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mote it be or something better. Until next time. Bye.